Welcome back in listeners to an exciting, exciting episode of Whisper in the Wings. Joining us today are the co-directors of a new show called Thou Shalt Not, uh, Karen Alver- uh, Alvarado and J.M. Meyer. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining uh, me today on our show. It's truly, truly an honor uh, joining you. Absolutely. We're glad to uh, be here. Yeah. Thank you. It's been, I, I, I've been really excited about speaking with you ever since I got the email about your show and about, um, about what the show is about. Theater obviously is my first love. Um, uh, <laughs> I made it my job. However, true crime is like number two right there. Anytime someone's like, okay, if you're not doing the theater, like what do you like to listen to? What do you like to read? When I'm on the subway, my nose is buried in a true crime book. So reading like the synopsis, I was like, hold on a minute like this this is some good good stuff how did i not know about this so why don't you guys go ahead and tell us a little bit about the show absolutely first off i have to say we're kindred spirits because whenever i'm um commuting to new york for theater jobs you know i should be a dutiful actor and be reading the script but i can't help (laughs) but like listen to some true true crime podcast that's like what it's about um for me it's relaxing as opposed to other people it's stressful so thinkery and verse uh with this hall mills project called thou shalt not it's our play um we've kind of married the two it is definitely an unsolved true story about a double homicide that happened in 1922 um, dealing with francis hall and um i'm sorry edward hall her husband and Eleanor Mills, uh, those two, it's kind of, you know, I can't help but say this word, a salacious story. Um, A preacher and a choir singer um, were having an affair and they were murdered for it. And their bodies were arranged out on a lover's lane and their love letters torn up and strewn over their bodies. And once the media caught wind of this, it was a media circus and everything kind of snowballed from there. There was a huge trial and the whole country was enraptured in the media um, frenzy that that was this unsolved double homicide. And I think it was only bumped off the newspapers by the Lindbergh kidnapping. That's how oh. big of a story this was back in the 1920s. But now, you know, you don't hear too much about it. Um, except on, you know, random unsolved mysteries, right? So so that's that's essentially the the plot of the play, but we actually are less interested in who did it, right? It's been a hundred years. We're not gonna find out who did it. We're more interested in the people's lives that were affected. So if I had to boil it down to kind of themes that we explore most, it's women, the role of women that were implicated forgotten and essentially uh derailed by the tragedy and uh the role of crime in society and then how the community responds to crime in society specifically this new jersey community yeah and i loved in the the release that i got that i mentioned about you know obviously the the parish or the church itself was primarily male dominated and it's been male excuse me male dominated for so long but as it began to become more female dominated all of a sudden there were you know 
previously when it was male dominated, what I'm trying to say, they didn't want to talk about this. It was covered up. And then as it became more female dominated, they were like, no, we, we need to talk about this. We have to get in front of it. It's attached to our church. More importantly, it's violence against women. And I was like, yes, scream it from the mountaintops. You can't, it's part of the history. It's not saying that it still happens like here at the church, but it happened. We have to acknowledge it. We can't just sweep under the rug like nothing happened. And I love that it was the women of the church that were like, um, hi, we were a victim too. Don't we get a say? 110%. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much a female dominated uh, vestry now. And they're the ones that told us about, about their history because when they were growing up, because most of them have lived in New Brunswick or the surrounding area for most of their lives. So they grew up in the church. So it wasn't even just went because it was, a uh, you know, as adults, they were, they were told to hush hush as children, they were told, this is something we don't talk about. It's a dark spot in our history. Um, but now that they're adults, they're like, wait a minute, why, why shouldn't we, this happened? Let's get in front of it. Let's like figure out like what our place in the, the story is. And uh, when they told us, hey, y'all should do a play about this, yeah, they approached us, Think Reinverse, about it because we go to that church and they know that we're artists and then they know that we're generative artists, more importantly, we create plays. Uh, um, we said, well, if we do this, we're going to be really honest about our perspective and what we find through archival research and, you know, our opinions. Um, we're not going to go light on the church and they said that's fine do Good. do what you need to do say what you need to say um that's the reality of the situation and so we're really grateful that they have not censored our voice and they really acknowledge um the the churches and the community's complicity um complacency in in this particular story amazing i'm glad that that, that it's not shrouded in anything it's pure honesty so how did you come up with the idea to, uh, well, how did you come up with the idea of the play, of the story and everything to come up with the way that you're doing it? Because as I read, it was an immersive, this is an immersive play. Oh, absolutely. Oh, it's so fun. It's, it, it gets me so excited. Well, first off, the way we even found the church, it was 100% by accident. Um, I, I was going to Rutgers, right, uh, which is in New Brunswick. Go Scarlet Nights. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was in my last year of theater conservatory there and I was having a baby. I had a baby and my parents uh, who are were from Texas, uh, they were only in town for two weeks. So we're like, we have to get this baby baptized before they go. So we scrambled. We found the nearest church, which, ha which happened to be St. John the Evangelist, which was one block away from where I lived. So we went there. We had this beautiful baptism. They made a cake for my son that they had never even met. They were very welcoming. Mm -hmm. And then they asked, what do y'all do? And we said, we're artists, we're theater artists. And they said, oh, you know, we talked. And then they said, oh, did do you know about the stuff that's happened here? So they were very open about, you know, the history of it. And actually the godparents that are from New Jersey, when they found out the baptism was at St. John's, they said, oh, the murder church? <laughs> that's actually how they, you know, people outside the church referred to it. So um, so that's how we were introduced to the story from the own their, the patrons there, the congregants there. And, um, and then they told us, well, we have all of this 
these boxes of documents from going all the way back. The church was built in 1861, going back to 1861, if you want to take a look. And we're like, yes, we do. So once we got our hands on the, on those documents, on those like, yeah, um, primary research items, you know, vestry meeting notes, um, things that he, that Father Hall actually said, things that James Mills, the sexton, who was husband to the woman who died actually said and how much he was paid and when he started working and when he stopped working and everything in between i mean it just there was too much not to explore it was and and that coupled with all of the the great books that have written written on the subject like the william kunstler book and there's this amazing graphic novel that captures it really well too and just lots of web sleuths podcasts true crime stories i mean there's so much research out there. Uh, it was almost begging somebody to put it all together. And, mm -hmm. and walking through that space, it's a very, let me say this, it's not a huge grand cathedral type of place. It is very much a small town type of church. You cannot help but know who is sitting four rows behind you. You know, it, 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 you know the maximum capacity is probably 150 people. Mm. People know each other, and to know that the man who died what, uh, st stood at that same pulpit that the current uh, preacher speaks from is something to be said. We know that the choir singer sat in this spot in the choir stalls that happens to be at the right angle to keep an eye on him. We know where his jealous wife sat, you know, and to put our audience in those actual places and to stay, the first half of the play is staged in the chapel itself. So you're sitting in the pews, just like the, the congregation would have. And then the second half of the play, we move through the church and we move into the assembly hall, which mm. is trans, transformed into um, everything from the place where the bodies were found, which is Lover's Lane, uh, which is now right around Landing Lane. Um, on that uh, close to Douglas, I'm sorry, close to College Avenue campus at, at Rutgers. And um, also the court, the courtroom trial, which happened in Somerset, New Jersey. So uh, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing to like be in a place that feels thin, if that makes sense, spiritually thin, as in you kind of get the sense that something's there and energy is there and yeah. telling the story of that energy. It's, it's something to behold. And let me tell you, we have cast members that, you know, some that doesn't bother them at all. And some, it gives them the, the heebie jeebies <laughs> and some go so far as to sage the place before every show, just to make sure there's no negative energy sticking to anybody. So we take all our precautions. I would love to see the space and, and whatnot, because, you know, I think everyone assumes, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, you know, being so close to New York and whatnot, everything's a big city, everything's a big town. And it's like, well, you get outside the city and you get a lot more of these small, like, hamlets and smaller towns. This sounds like the smaller town that everyone knows everyone and no secret is safe. Everyone knows everyone's secret. So I can only imagine back then, 100 years ago what this must have been like to have this big of a secret lying in this town and even just one more person outside of it to know sitting in that church knowing what happened 
you know, talk about an elephant in the room and in that small of a space, like, oh, that the uncomfortable level in that room, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you said it, everyone knows everything about everyone. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that this relationship between Father Hall and Eleanor Mills, they were both, they were both married to other people. Um, you, we have to wonder, you know, were, were they deeply in love? Was it, you know, merely like a fling type of situation? We don't, we don't know. We have our opinion about it in the play, but it's too small of a congregation for everybody not to see it. And the fact that his wife, Frances Hall, who was indicted along with her brother, um, she was never convicted, but she did go to trial for it. She swears up and down that she knew nothing about any sort of relationship. She denied it to the very end that they there was mm. nothing sordid going on, as well as everyone in the congregation never acknowledged that anything ever happened. So that's why we say the church definitely held its tongue. Um, and But the sad part is, is that Father, so they defended Father Hall, even, you know, postmortem, but they never did the same to Eleanor Mills, who also grew up in that church from a child. She sang in the choir. She had her kids baptized there. Her husband was the sexton. Yet because Father Hall and his wife, Frances, were the richest people in town, mm -hmm. right? And they're, they're, they're linked to the Johnson & Johnson dynasty. They're linked to um, the Nielsen dynasty, the Voorheeses, all these names that you see on buildings all over this city. They're, they're all linked to this, to this family because they're the richest people in town. And Eleanor Mills and her husband were working class people. The church completely um, does not open their arms and embrace Eleanor. They let the papers call her mm -hmm. a whore. They let the papers um, ransack, you know, her, her, her surviving members of her family you know um mm -hmm. just really taking advantage especially of her daughter charlotte mills and charlotte mills is an interesting character because she was 16 when her mother died and her father james mills the sexton again in complete denial no my wife never did anything um behind my back he also didn't have the urge to really find out who did it, which kind of makes you wonder why does he, why was he not the biggest advocate for getting justice? Um, who knows, right? But the daughter was, that 16 year old girl in 1922 did everything she could to find her, her mother's murderers and to bring them to justice. And you see this poor girl just fighting an uphill battle for years and years and years and years and you see it slowly, um, even though she's a survivor, you see it chip away at her life. And she ends up dying very young in her 40s, mm. never getting married, never accomplishing what she wanted to accomplish, which was going to college because she dedicated her life to the tragedy of her mother. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, this ripple effect that it has on families, um, crime.
what is the message you're hoping your audience takes away when they see the show? A, a few things. First off, uh, don't underestimate the role of women in society. Mm-hmm. Um, they really are the backbone of lots of institutions, whether they be religious institutions or you know, business institutions or in the household. Um, so, and women deserve just as much uh, respect and celebration as um, men in society. Mm-hmm. And it, you really see that, you see the stark difference in how you know, two people were killed, the man is revered and mourned, and the woman is um, torn apart and forgotten. Um, So that's one thing we want to highlight. Another thing is how a society reacts, either well, or behaves very badly in reaction to violence in the community who do they come together and honor and celebrate and who do they not? Um, so kind of putting a spotlight on the people of the church and the people in the community, not only the church mm-hmm. people, but the police acted very badly. Um, the investigators uh, used probably uh, not so PC tactics. Um, they probably ignored certain leads and Uh, went light on certain people and focused on certain people because they had an agenda that didn't necessarily line up with the reality of what was going on. So it's, it's really shining a light on society in general and its reaction to crime and violence. And I think that's a very, very important message, especially now. It's incredible that this story and this event took place a hundred years ago, and but the message is just as true today 100 years later absolutely you know sad that we're here still 100 years later but i know it's it's it really is amazing yeah i mean we're about to reach the centennial um memorial of this tragedy and we're still like we're still having to question the police we're still having to question the justice system we're still having to just to to question you know who's convicted who's indicted you know how much money do they have if you have enough money can you get out of murder right like it's still these themes that are just spinning into our future and the more we can highlight them i think uh, the more awareness and hopefully empathy and and change can come of that Ears open from your lips to God's ears. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how I'm going to, I'm going to combine these next two questions. Um, how long have you guys been working on this project and has it been performed in the past? If so, where? Okay. So in 2017, that's when we learned of the project. So we've been tinkering with it since then. Um, in 2019, we had a workshop production in the church Um, And it went fantastic. It was pretty much a sold out run. Um, We were going to do it again in 2020 uh, in New York, as well as in New Jersey, but of course, COVID. (laughs) That little thing. (laughs) So instead we, we pivoted and we pivoted hard, much like you and, and your podcast as theater artists, we had to to figure out how are we still going to tell our stories. So we made a podcast. It's called, um, that's where, that's how the story goes. 
um, that's season one and it it dives into a lot of these issues that I'm talking about in terms of the Hall, Hall Mills double homicide. Um, you can look it up under Think Reinverse and season one is that's how the story goes, Hall Mills. And we also did something called a ghost hunt, which is very cool. It's small audio stories from the play coupled with geocaching. Ooh. So you can go find a hidden treasure artifact at actual places linked to the murder. So there's one at the Hall Mills mansion down the street. There's one in Carmen Street where Eleanor Mills used to live. There's one at the cemetery. There's one on Lover's Lane. Um, and once you find the artifact, you can listen to the audio story associated with it. It's very cool. It's called Ghost Hunt. In fact, if you just go to thinkreinverse.org, uh, there's links to the podcast. There's links to the ghost hunt. It's all free. Um, so we've had our hand in the story since 2017 in some way, shape, or form, but we're so excited, and it feels like the stars are aligning, that it feels only right that for this 100-year, uh, there's no way, way else to say it, anniversary, the 100 the years after the, the murders, that's when we're finally going to be able to put the play on in its full glory at the church in New Brunswick, in the actual place where these people worked and worshiped. Oh my gosh. I just, I love all of that. And I, I literally was writing down everything. Cause I'm like, yes, yes. Ghost stories, geocaching, all of this. And it's still centered and it's tied back to the show. I mean, this is, this show has it all. This is incredible. So tying into that, who do you hope have access to the show? I mean, I think, I think it's for everyone. I mean, obviously true crime lovers, I think anybody who likes anything spooky will enjoy it. But here's also the thing. Everything we've done, yes, it's uh, it's filtered through our artistic lens, but so much of it is based in real history, in court documents, in um, resources that are linked directly you know, to the people who wrote them. So it's very much history-based. So I would say a history-based audience, people who like local history um, would love it. And of course, theater goers, because our specific aesthetic for theater, I mean, I guess as a director, uh, one quote that's been said about my direction is that it's like, a theatrical tapestry, uh, weaving different languages, movement, music, um, different types of text and source material. So we kind of have a little bit for everyone. So if somebody really enjoys music and plays, you're going to get that. You're going to get, you're going to get that in spades. Um, yeah, I would say there's a bit of avant-garde uh, in, in our play as well. Yay! I know it's so hard not to say like I want everyone to come, you know. But it's I love that you you mentioned spooky and and all of that kind of thing because I there there is an audience for that, you know. And in fact, my 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 mother in law is here right now with us, um, and I just started tours. We just started offering tours through our podcast, um, and uh, obviously, right now we're focusing on the history of 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 theater in Times Square, but I was like, I want to do something different that everyone else is not doing. I don't want to offer ghost tours because everyone expects to go see ghosts, but I'm like, I'm true crime obsessed. I think I'm going to do a, like a murder tour and like show like crime through New York, but like really like 
crime. And um, my wife and my mother-in-law were talking like, is there really an audience for that? I'm like, oh, trust me, there's totally an audience for that. I wish they did more like true crime and spooky shows in theater because I would just sit there and nom, 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 you know? <laughs> so Well, yeah, oh, there is an audience. In fact, when we did the workshop production in 2019, um, just go on Facebook and type in Hall Mills. There's like four or five groups that are just dedicated to this one true crime story. And they, you know, postulate on like, who could have done it? No, it had to be the KKK. No, it had to be Willie Stevens. No, it had, you know, and, and I, I remember one or two of the groups, um, they even got mad at us. They were like, you're not trying to solve the murder. So you can't be part of our group. <laughs> like, you know, so people are, are like hot headed, passionate about, these subjects um so yeah we might piss some people off with this play but that's okay and that's how theater should work it's not necessarily meant to make you feel comfortable <laughs> yeah exactly exactly show we not only uh talk about and break down theater shows but we also talk about our personal experiences in theater um so i want to uh talk to you guys a little bit about your personal experience in theater and i do just want to take this opportunity to let our listeners know there really are a total of three of us on this interview um <laughs> jm yes. is with us uh we're just having some technical issues with sound um but but he is here with us um uh, I, I am here. I, sorry about being quiet. I just because I'm at rehearsal. There's singing in the background, bad Wi-Fi, and chaos in general. But we're we're so excited to be here. And, and Karen, you did a great job describing the show. Um, Thanks. And she, yeah. Karen's, Karen's pro. Yeah, yeah. J, uh, JM is uh, my co-artistic director, the co-director of this play, and my life partner. So uh, well, you know. Well, Andrew, a few episodes ago. Did you look at Alan Cummings Macbeth a few episodes ago? Yes, we did. Yeah, we we did a that whole was episode fantastic. about it. Yeah, I I, I loved uh, your episode, and I also loved that production. You know, that's that kind of aesthetic works so well. Uh, it's uh, it certainly had an influence on me when I was thinking yeah, Macbeth in general, but that that particular production, it's, it's that kind of character switching and that kind of um, sense of how to tell a story that keeps the audience engaged and, and kind of aware of theater magic taking place. It's just very exciting. Yes. And it was so haunting. And I mean, at least for me, because I have personally, first of all, hospitals freak me out. You put in that as a psychiatric hospital and I'm, nope, I'm out. You guys have fun with that. And for him to place it there and to watch this brilliant Scottish performer perform the Scottish play, I was at the same time just, amazed but then just completely frightened and i was like i want more theater that makes me feel this though i left the theater and i was like the only other show that i've ever left more uncomfortable and i'm excited when we cover it is 1984 um uh, i don't know if you guys got to see wow. that yeah uh, i did most very uncomfortable place very uncomfortable 
Yeah, I I left so disturbed. And when we went and we did the stage door and right across the street was the Lyceum uh, where the play that goes wrong was playing. And I said to my wife, I said, you think they'd let us buy a ticket and go catch the second half? Because I just, I got to cleanse my palate. I got to get this out of my head. But it was a Monday. And I, of course, there were no other shows on a Monday. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't get that ending out of my head. Like, oh, it was so, you know, but up, up until that point, Alan Cummings Macbeth had been the woman. I was like, this, seeing him pull the teddy bear out of the bag, that bloody teddy bear, I was like, oh man, you know, but that's you should have the full spectrum of theater in that sense you know there should be the music man on one end that makes you feel good then that makes you feel uncomfortable and not like questioning your values per se uncomfortable but just thrilling and frightening you you know yeah yeah so i want to ask you guys what um what shows in the past have inspired you or do you love going along with that? And I'll also open it up to composers or playwrights. Oh, well, there's a theater company in general that I, I dig. Um, and I think, I think this is true of both Johnny and I, but I'll let him, I'll let him speak for himself later. A Bedlam theater. Uh, yes. Yes. In New York, they, they do some, some really beautiful beautiful work and it, and it, it's mixing all the aesthetics which is which is what i like and they take something classical and they excavate it to where it feels either contemporary or it feels like a new spin on on something old mm -hmm. um, so i really love bedlam theater i love so much of what i've seen at the national uh it's just it's just fearless stuff uh that they do overseas and i don't know i'm trying to think of one uh that man, that's a hard question. It's like saying, "What you know to a movie lover? What's your favorite movie?" L let me let Johnny answer, and and by the time he's done, I'll I'll have another answer for you. Too. Okay. Yeah. So that I think that the Scottish play for sure. I I agree with Karen. A lot of our inspiration comes from uh, UK theater, whether it's in, whether it's in London or outside of but the National Theater. We also the National Theater of Scotland have done some incredible work over the past few years. Um, you know, uh, let's see, but you, you know, I, when, I, I think that we are, we are Shakespeare nerds. We do love his ability, Shakespeare's ability, the early modern sensibility of being able to play with language and, and think through complicated political subjects in public forum. That's always going to be amazing uh, to us. Um, when it comes to Thou Shalt Not, I know we've been particularly looking at, well, we were looking at a non-playwright, uh, James Joyce, his his prose style influenced us. He, he published Ulysses in 1920. Oh, so yeah. that, he, yeah, and it gives us, that gives us a, a, a modernist knife, so to speak, to, to go into that society, right? That way it's not just all, you know, Americans tend to view the 1920s uh, as the roaring 20s or the or the the Great Depression, like those two polar opposites. Mm -hmm. And Ulysses, uh, the, the modernist perspective, gives us a sharper knife to get society with. So that's, I think that's that's where I'd say for, for this group for thing. That's where I put my mind. I have to share a quick insight about Bedlam Theater Company, and I'm so glad I met someone yeah, who yeah. A knows about them, but B is a fan. My senior show in college, we did Into the Woods in the style of Bedlam Theater Company. 
we with like okay. the found right, right. space you know this ladder is a tree but it also doubles as this and that we had a cast of nine people that played the entire show so i was the stepsister amazing wolf i was a print you know um and we our, our our director had gone and they she'd seen a production i can't remember the show but she'd seen them do something and she came back and she said this is how we're going to present this show you guys really want to do the show we don't have a big enough cast we don't have a huge space but we can make it work if we do it like this and we all fell in love with it and i was like this is amazing so when i tell people oh yeah there's this theater company in new york and they do it like this it's called bedlam they all look at me like i just like you know rip my clothes off and dance the tarantella right in front of them they have no idea so i'm so glad there's someone else out there that like yes you get it <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah it, no. We're very much inspired. Yeah, I was on a, yeah, back in the day, I was on a fellowship theater outreach program. So I was working with Stefan Wolford and then Eric Tucker, yeah. uh, their director at the time, uh, their, their artistic director. And I, they're, they're, it was really a fun experience. And now Karen's actually going to be in two, she's doing uh, Head of Gabbler and Winter's Tale and Rep with Bedlam this fall. So that'll be yeah. fun too. Like right after, right after we finish Thou Shall Not, they that yeah. It'll be fun. It's going to be a great season. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny, like um, being inspired by a theater company and like writing about them in grad school, right? Like in my avant-garde class, like, you know, what show did you see in New York that you want to write about and, and pick apart? And like, so doing that about Bedlam and then actually working with them later on, it, it's fun, this like kind of full circle feeling. So, so yeah, they're, they're very inspirational. Um, I also really like, uh, highly cultural work just to get back to that question that you were asking, just anything that really digs into a particular culture. Um, there's a couple artists, uh, that are rooted out of university of Texas, um, that have made some really great stuff about like Ciudad Juarez, um, uh, one play in particular called Women of Wattis, and it's just really beautifully crafted. And it takes like hardcore dramaturgy about real life uh, incidences that are happening in Mexico or along the Mexican border, and then filters it through the magic of theater. And at, on the other end, you get something that teaches you something, but more importantly, makes you feel you know, it makes you feel like down to like your roots. So um, Isaac Gomez, I guess, is the the dramaturge slash writer director that I, I really respect and I'm, I'm inspired by as well. And I think he's working at he's working in Chicago. Yeah, they're the one stuff. Steppenwolf now. Uh, yeah, they're, right? yeah they're, all, they're also caught up in that crazy. Uh, um, they, uh, Isaac, I think, is they them at this point. Um, yes. and they exceeded the gender binary um mm. and what they're uh yeah they're they're caught up in that victory garden scandal actually uh which is crazy they're one of the artists who was uh at when victory garden like fired their artistic director isaac gomez was a writer for them at the time um very very different topic yeah <laughs> but uh, you know job. about artists and power fighting the board and trying to figure out who should who gets to choose the plays, right? Yeah, that's that is a <laughs> that's been an interesting story to follow. <laughs> that's a whole podcast episode on its own. <laughs> oh my gosh, you have no idea. 
Um, well, go, going back to you guys, have you guys seen any great theater that you might recommend to our listeners? As of late, yeah, I saw I saw a beautiful one woman show um, called Little Girl Blue, and the artist is Leona Michelle. Yes, she. I mean, she's she's fantastic. She's the new, I guess not new anymore, associate artistic director for George Street Playhouse here in New Jersey which is how I originally knew her. And then I saw her show and I was like, oh my gosh, it was, it's a, it, it's about the life of Nina Simone. It's And it's not like a jukebox musical. People who went in to go see it like that. I was like, no, 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 no. This uh, is like, it's very Lady Day at Emerson Bar and Grill. Oh yeah. Oh man. And it just, it just like made, I think she induced, I, I just had a baby. I had a baby like two days after I had, I saw that show in New York. And I, <laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure that show uh, induced my labor like, <laughs> like it was it was so intense it was so good yeah yeah that was a joy to see i'm with you on that yeah johnny what about you you just he johnny just got back from edinburgh scotland he just got the fringe festival break. yeah we had just spoken to a couple people out there so yeah anything good that you saw there i did the, the choir behind me is in full swing right now but i'll give it a shot so they yeah, I saw a dance piece called 71, 71 Bodies. Uh, by, it, was, it was created by a trans artist, um, and they were just absolutely stunning. Uh, it, it was 45 minutes, the most difficult movement piece I've ever seen. Uh, so that, that, was, that was stunning. And then the, the Medea that the National Theatre of Scotland just put on was a beautiful work in which the forest just played a, a tremendously and. Uh, Medea is always a scary play, but the way they staged it, uh, you know, they used a it's sort of aisle, an aisle configuration traverse that uh, really brought you in and and screwed. So it, it brought the fear back into Medea, which is a, a scary story. But you know, the chorus is, is often in, in these Greek plays. It's often very clunkily, clunkily, clunky, poorly formed. In this case, they had uh, they had just a, a phenomenal group. So, so hats off to National Theatre of Scotland for their Medea and then uh, seventy one bodies was, was a stunning physical theater dance piece. That's fantastic. I I I'm, I look forward to going to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival one day, and I was so happy with how many shows reached out to us. We actually had one on the show, and you know it's. It's exciting to see theater returning and being back. So, and I can't, I'm excited to see what shows come out of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival to be continued to be developed. That's the exciting thing because it's just, you know, it's it's one giant kitchen and we're all just making new dishes out there. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's exciting. What is your guys' favorite part about working in the theater? Well, for me, it's, it's, I'm, this may sound corny, but it, it's food. It's food for my soul. Um, you know, like you need food as sustenance for your body. And for me, I need this type of art 
to to feed my mind and my heart. Um, I, I in the hardest parts of my life, every time I start working on a show, it, it gets me through. I I don't know how else to say it. It's it's kind of the driving force. And what I love now about this part of my life, you know, I'm I'm in my 30s and. Um, creating theater with my partner and we have children is is now folding our children into the mix and not having them be a separate entity but mm -hmm. um, kind of reestablishing what I view as success and knowing that like theater you can have a family and be an artist as well you know it doesn't have to be two separate things and and theater for me it allows that Amazing. I think we lost uh, JM. Um, so then I'll, I'll just continue this with you. Sure. Uh, what is you know, an easy question to, to wind things down with? What is your favorite theater memory? Uh, my favorite theater memory was when I was 15. I, um, I was in a, get this, I was in a traveling Hispanic historical theater troupe that would tour South Texas border towns. And yes. we, would do, we would do little historical dramas about like Mexican culture and, and history. And it was so fun because I was the youngest one in the group. And every now and then we would go um, across the border into Mexico. And when I got to go to Mexico, I would get to like order my own beer. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just so much fun and like my family was there with me so uh yeah my my i was 15 and getting to explore my culture through theater it was like a blast it was such a blessing and it felt like a family oh i love that yeah. that see that's the important thing about theaters is, is family to me you you know whether it's mm -hmm. it's through the cast or a company or what have you you just you connect with family. I think that's something a lot of people don't get outside of our community when they're like, no, family is blood. Family. And I'm like, I don't know. When you're in the theater, you start to really realize, oh, theater or family is, is kind of who you, who you make, who, exactly. who you connect with, you know, not saying blood family isn't family, but yeah, you know, these people you meet become family in a way. Yeah. And I think I, Johnny would probably say something like social storytelling or, you know, some, some very like cerebral answer. So I won't speak for him, but I will say this, that Johnny, um, JM Meyer, he, he was in the army and oh. I know, yeah, he, he served in Iraq and Afghanistan for eight years. And then, and then he started doing theater. Um, and I think it was theater, uh, it, it brought that, that camaraderie that he found in the army, he found it again with his fellow actors. Uh, there's something about that togetherness that like we all have one goal. We're all trying to do the best thing for, you know, for one common purpose. Um, he found that. So I think that that's just a really beautiful connection that you're right. Family is what we make it. And sometimes it's, it's on a stage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I do want to take this moment then. Um, Unfortunately, JM is having connection issues, so he's not in the room with us, but um, hopefully he'll listen to this. And I just want to say on behalf of all of us here at Stage Whisper, we want to thank him very, very much for his service, for his, his very selfless service uh, for us and for our country. That's 
that's incredible. And now his selfless service to the arts of yeah. theater, because <laughs> uh, we all know how that goes, you know, yeah. <laughs> you, oh, you yeah. do theater for the love of it, not for the money. Nobody, um, nobody's getting rich here, let me tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh, ain't it the truth? But that's, that is amazing. And, and what, just another reason to really appreciate this guy. This is incredible. Um, I want to wrap things up here with you because I know that you guys need to get to your, your rehearsal. Um, I just want to ask if there are any other productions that you have coming on the pipeline that we can talk about. Now, I heard mention of Hedda Gabler and um, um, something Winter's else that you were in. Winter's Tale. And that's at Bedlam, right? And you're in that? Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm performing in uh, repertoire with uh, Bedlam Theater, Hedda Gabler and Winter's Tale at a theater called Irondale in Brooklyn. And that is gonna be October 11th through December 11th. So that's awesome. If you wanna see me wear my other hat, which is the acting hat, you can go see that. And then of course, Thou Shalt Not, um, our Hall Mills play, which we are stoked about. That is October, nope, I'm September wrong. 5th through October 8th. There we go, September 5th through October 8th. And I'm thinking we might extend to October 15th. Um, oh, that's amazing. So yes, please come see that. We'd love to uh, share a glass of wine and talk about the art and have you get spooked out in, in the church. Yes. Um, if our listeners want to get more information about your show or about you guys, how can they find it or reach out to you? Uh, thinkeryandverse.org. So um, yeah, thinkeryandverse.org. And yeah, our contact information is on there. Links to all of our different projects, the free ones like Ghost Hunt and the podcast, they're all on there as well as uh, tickets and information about the show thou shalt not perfect well um my guests today have been karen alvarado and uh jm meyer <laughs> for as long as this connection would let us yes <laughs> both are co-directors of the show thou shalt not which is playing uh september 5th through october 8th with a possible extension um, at the Assembly Hall at the Church of St. John the Evangelist, or Evangelist, excuse me, which is at 189 George Street in New uh, Brunswick, New Jersey. The shows play Thursday through Saturday at 7.30 p.m. And you can get tickets and more information not only about the show, but also about Karen and JM at thinkeryandverse.org. Um, and we will be posting all of this with the show's information, as well as on our social media. Um, this sounds like an amazing show, so do not miss it. Uh, our New York listeners, I know it's in Jersey, but I think this is worth the Uber right over the uh, Hudson River to check this out. I know I'm going to, to get myself an Uber and head on over. Um, since Karen, you're here with us, JM, thank you in the ethos, but Karen, yeah. <laughs> thank you guys so much for making the time for us today. We really appreciate it. It's been an absolute joy speaking with you guys and, you know, just learning so much about the show. Thank you so much. Of course, Andrew, have a great day and thank you for all that you're doing for theater. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep your masks on, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Thank you.
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, Jesse Spillane, David Mumford, and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you.